3: As we get into season five here in the next few weeks, we will be releasing a series of episodes covering the historic drought in the western U.S. One of the most important landscapes in those discussions is going to be the Klamath Basin. To help orient you to the region, we are going to be re-releasing three episodes from season three in which we discussed some of the history of the Klamath Basin and how it is shaping some of the events unfolding these days. We encourage you to listen to these episodes as they lay the foundation for a deeper understanding and appreciation for the intricacies of the conversations that will follow. This is episode three of three.
0: Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier.
3: We are here with episode three of our discussion about the Klamath Basin. Uh, out in Southern Oregon and Northern California. And we are again joined by our two guests that are very knowledgeable on this subject, Dr. Dave Mauser and Dr. Mark Petrie. I will start this episode the way I did the previous one. If you missed either of those previous two episodes, you need to stop listening to this one and go back and listen to them in sequence. It's a very complex subject, a very interesting subject, and it builds these episodes build sequentially off one another. So with that, uh, Dave and Mark, welcome back to the podcast. And thanks again for sharing your time. It's been very generous with your time on this topic and I thank you for that. Happy to do it, Mike. Yep, thank you. Dave, we left off the previous episode uh, basically in the early 2000s. We had discussed briefly the 2001 Klamath water crisis. uh, And I know there is another very significant event that occurred in 2020, uh, the 2020 biological opinion, as we will come to talk about it here. Between that 2001 uh, Klamath water crisis, I know... There were some kind of grassroots collaborative approaches, uh, attempts to to reach some some solutions uh, for uh, for the management of of water and water interest in the region. We're not going to get into those in great detail. Um, That's sort of a story in itself, and ultimately is not too influential in ultimately where we go with this story. But is there anything else leading up to the 2020 biological opinion, which which becomes the next kind of pivotal? moment in this story, is there anything else that we need to talk about before we get to that point?
1: Well, there's there's an evolution of the biological opinions, um, really, starting with 1992, uh, suckers in the lake only, fairly flexible opinion, uh, fairly low lake levels, which allowed for a lot of water delivery. As you move further in time toward today, uh, of course, you add another endangered species in the Klamath River, uh, downstream of Upper Klamath Lake in the suckers. Uh, So that adds another element of water regulation. So anyway, you have two things going on at one time. River flows are being mandated for this, for this coho in the river and lake levels in in Upper Klamath Lake. And lake levels are creeping up in the lake and flows are creeping up in the river. It gets tougher and tougher. Now, and then you add, as you get into toward 2020, add another component uh, to the biological opinion, particularly to the river. And that is the need for geomorphic flows in the Klamath River, and 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 the role of geomorphic flows in controlling disease in the salmon. Uh, in other words, geomorphic flows are basically flood flows that clean the gravel, uh, reduce parasites to the fish in the gravels, and those sorts of things. Form the channels, uh, recruit gravel, those sorts of things, and it's very important to the fish. But the way from the refuge side of things. Uh, we started with the, uh, back in 92, if there was water left over in the lake, we would get it. Then there was a period of time when you couldn't get water if it was left over at the end of the lake because they needed to save it for next year in the lake. And then you add, of course, the river flows as another tight spot. And so water just gets tighter and tighter, uh, but we could always up until recently we could always depend on well there'll be winter flows flood flows right down the river geez we'll play catch up we'll get all the water we can um, but then when you get into the river needing geomorphic or flood flows down the river then it, you start asking when will you get water and so it, you know those biological opinions have evolved up to the 2020 opinion which leaves very little water for the refuge
4: and I think you saw that you saw that through the 2000s, Dave, when you look at some of the water um, supplied to at least lower Klamath, where in the 90s, um, the refuge was getting pretty much all the water it needed, as points you made earlier. Bird numbers were high in as we get into the 2000s, the first decade. um the, the refuge is only getting about, I think, maybe a third of what it had traditionally got or needed in the 1990s. And duck numbers began to fall off um, in
1: response to that. Yeah, it's been uh, just, a you know, it's painful to watch. It's painful to work in that environment. But yeah, it, it's, you know, as a wetland manager, it, it, it's hard to practice your your trade, so to speak.
3: Yeah. And we're still talking about the lower Klamath here. I want to just kind of reorient some of our listeners. We also have Tule Lake National Wildlife Refuge, which is, is kind of undergoing some of its own challenges at this time. But here with these water restrictions we're talking about. And maybe on, Mark, I think you said maybe getting only a third of the water that it really needs. That's that's lower Klamath, right?
4: Yes. And my, Dave, my understanding is lower Klamath needs about 95,000 acre feet per year to be managed properly. Of course, it has to get the water at the right time of the year too. And during the night, during the nineties, it was getting that amount of water, but during the first decade of the two thousands, it was only getting about 34, 35,000 acre feet per year on average. And, um, what was, what was a problem as well too is, that water needed to be delivered, I believe, you know, beginning in late spring and through the summer, if the units were going to be fully flooded come fall migration. Um, but it wasn't getting water deliveries during that, that time of the year, which made it very, very difficult to have those
1: units flooded up for fall migration. Yeah. Yeah. The principal two time periods for the refuge water was really beginning, um, in the spring to, to maintain and through the summer to maintain your permanent units through the summer uh, for you know colonial water birds and duck production. And and then there would be a big jump come September 1st when you'd start flooding uh, roughly 10 or 12,000 acres of seasonal wetlands. And you would be flooding those um, clear, clear through November. And then in December and January, you would start pre-irrigating your grain fields, which was the ducks also found course, found very attractive. But so that that was kind of how it worked. Water in the summer for for summer wetlands and water production, water bird production, and then fall for the migrants and then the grain fields in the winter.
3: Mark, remind me here, if you have these numbers off the top of your head, waterfowl numbers in the Klamath Basin, and maybe you can break this down by the lower Klamath National Wildlife Refuge if you want to. Uh, What were waterfowl numbers in the early 2000s? Do you have that number? Uh well I think Mike in the nineteen
4: nineties um average peak counts on lower Klamath were somewhere in the vicinity, I think, of around six or seven hundred thousand birds, which would have occurred probably in early to mid-November. Dave, does that sound
1: right? It sounds right. I I think late nineties we even hit a peak of over a million birds in, in yeah. one of the years. One of the years. And then those numbers Mike have
4: have steadily declined since then. Um, I don't have the numbers exactly in front of me, but I think probably in the 2000s, you probably had half that many birds um, on Lower Klamath. And then in the last 10 years, you probably had half that many again. Yeah. So just, just a really, as, as, as water supplies to the refuge have declined really over the last 20 years, bird numbers have followed closely behind. There's a very, very tight
1: relationship there. And you, you know, the trouble with a lot of that is when you lose the birds, you also lose a tradition those birds have. And, um, you know, that especially the geese, you lose a tradition with the geese and it's very hard to get back. But, um, I've noticed just in banding, uh, mallards, for example, on the refuge, uh, you'd always, you, you get a lot of recaptures and you'd be recapturing the same ducks year after year after year in the same place. Um, you know, the, the ducks, there's not only a population of mallards, but they're a collection of individuals that have a certain, certain pattern they follow through the year, where they go at certain times and, and where they molt. And, and if it's successful for them, they do it again. But anyway, you start to break that when, 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 you know, you don't have certainty of providing habitat for those birds on a year-to-year basis.
3: Dave, let's move to the 2020 biological opinion uh, help our listeners understand exactly what that is and exactly what brought that about.
1: Oh, boy. You know, I'm not, uh, you know, I've been retired for seven years, so I'm not totally up on all, all the politics that went into having to do that. I, I, I will note, though, that, uh, you know, that in the 30 years or so that uh, these fish have been listed, there's been probably, this has to be at least. 10 or 15 10-year biological opinions. <laughs> in other words, they get, they get two years into these things and something didn't work out the way they wanted them to. So they come up with a, they, they rewrite for a new plan. Um, so I'm not exactly sure, but I know that this, this issue of geomorphic flows for the fish and, and solving the disease issues with Salmonids and the Klamath is, 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 is a big wrinkle, a big deal. It's a lot of water. It's hard to store water if you're sending the floodwaters downstream.
4: I can throw a few, I can maybe share a few numbers with your listeners associated with the 2020 biological opinion, if that helps. And and, and really what that opinion does, Dave, is it kind of fair to characterize that the 2020 biological opinion or really any biological opinion in the past essentially governs how Upper Klamath Lake is going to be managed from a fish standpoint?
1: Yeah, yeah, correct, and and that that's kind of an important point, is that a biological opinion is is regulates a federal agency, uh, governs their actions to so that it will be protective of an endangered species or not affect an endangered species. So it's a little bit of a mismatch for a biological opinion to also allocate water for. Refuge, Mm -hmm. But that's exactly what it does and it it allocates water
4: for irrigators as well. So, so Mike, the the, the 2020 biological opinion was kind of put to the test this last water year, which was a dry year, correct, Dave, in the Klamath Basin? Yeah, yes. It was on full display pretty early here because there wasn't a lot of water in the lake. And just to give you a sense of what happened there in terms of the different uh, water needs, um, So agriculture requires about, I think, around 400 and maybe 40,000 acre feet or around 400,000 acre feet a year from the lake uh, to to properly irrigate the 230,000 acres of farmland in the Klamath Basin. Um, they were only allocated 140,000 acre feet this year, so only really about a third of what they needed, and that is because the 2020 biological opinion was was saying, hey, the lake needs to be at this level for suckers and it needs to send this much water downstream uh, for coho uh, to properly meet those fish needs. And when those, when the math was done on that, there was only 140,000 acre feet allowed um, to be used for irrigation purposes in 2020. Now, if the lake was in better shape and had more water in it, obviously more of those irrigation needs could be met. But you kind of get a sense of how important the 2020 biological opinion is to the agricultural community in a dry year. They're only going to get
1: about a third of the water they need. Yeah, the, the point there is, and the refuge doesn't get water under that biological opinion until agriculture is fulfilled. Right. And and
4: Dave, this is kind of a question you might be able to help me understand this. My understanding too of the 2020 biological opinion is lower Klamath was allocated 11,000 acre feet when lake levels allow it. Now we know that the refuge requires about 95,000 acre feet to be properly managed. So we're talking only about 10% of what the refuge actually needs. And and But my understanding of reading that was um, even if lake levels might permit more, that 11,000 acre feet was an actual cap on what the refuge might receive. And in fact, it, it, there's no guarantee it'll even get those 11,000 acre feet um, unless the water is there in the, in the lake. For example, this year, um,
1: I think Lower Klamath was only allocated four or 5,000 acre feet of their 11. Yeah, I believe that's right. And I think, uh, yeah, and, and those numbers that they come up with in those biological opinions are, that's what the model is telling them, you know, four or five months down the road after the irrigation season or during the irrigation season, they think might be available if runoff conditions are as predicted, weather is normal, uh, you know, those sorts of things. So it's a crapshoot whether uh, that water will actually be there. Right. And the fact that it's only if it's there, it's only
4: 11,000 acre feet, which is, again, only about 10 percent right. of what the refuge is getting um, right. is is hardly a rosy picture. And, and I know, Dave, you made the point earlier, too, about when water is actually delivered, um, that those those spring through summer through early fall deliveries are very important for the refuge. So it's not just how much water the refuge gets, but when it gets it. And my understanding of the 2020 biological opinion, there'll essentially be no water or almost snow water delivered um, to lower Klamath from that spring through early fall period, which means, you know, these great seasonal wetlands
1: that usually greeted these fall migrating birds simply aren't going to be there. Yeah. The, the timing of water delivery yeah, is huge. I mean, it's, it's being able to provide the habitat for the species you want or you're planning for um, at the time you are planning for them to be there. So if it's not there, they're, they're gone.
3: Dave, I have a couple of questions here. Um, during those years, such as this this most recent one, where only a fraction of the needed irrigation water is available, do those farmers continue on with production? Just, kind of roll the dice I mean this we're talking about the arid west is there precipitation that could fall and possibly serve to to grow those crops or is irrigation water the only source of water for growing what happens to those crops when they don't get enough uh, irrigation water
1: well of course the, the crops die if they don't get enough irrigation water but um, what the farmers do here uh, they make heavy use of groundwater if it's if they're close to where there's groundwater available Or oftentimes there's government drought relief programs that help them out in those years, and so that's kind of how they get through. And um, some years they don't get through. I mean, it's it's tough, and that's one of the biggest uh, problems they have with this whole process. You know, we have the refuge has its problems with water uh, availability. Their problem is the same. They need a certain amount of water, and they need to know it ahead of time because. They have to go get bank loans to you know, buy the seed, to buy the fertilizer, to hire the people. Um, so it's, it's kind of
3: similar. And do they have that, that kind of advance notice? Uh, at what point do, do the irrigation districts notify them of the amount of water available? Is it before they make those planting decisions?
1: Um, they, as much as possible, I think Reclamation does try to do that. Uh, the drop-dead date is kind of April 1st. But I think the Bureau, as much as they can, tries to put out uh, some kind of a forecast in March.
3: I was just kind of curious about that because having worked down on the Gulf Coast, I know there's several irrigation districts in Texas that kind of have to go through that same process and it affects what rice producers can and can't do. And so I, I figured there was a similar attempt to notify people well in advance of the opportunities for irrigation. Water, water just wasn't, wasn't sure how that worked out there.
1: Yeah. You know, I think the early projections were 140,000 acre feet. And then I think there was a midsummer correction to about 70 or 80,000, which caused a lot of consternation. Uh, And then the 140 was restored back. Uh, I'm not sure why, whether hydrologic conditions changed or politics changed or what, but uh, it was a tough year for farmers this year. And a lot of it is about uncertainty.
3: And I guess another... Maybe connection back to the hydrological landscape there, engineered the hydrologically or the, the engineered landscape. Does the water, does the irrigation runoff from Upper Klamath Lake have an influence on water in the, in Tule Lake uh, National Wildlife Refuge sumps, or is that water coming from a different irrigation district?
1: Oh, that the Thule Lake sumps are a collecting point for return flows from from irrigated agriculture upstream of Thule Lake, and and so, you know, farmers use water. Uh, there's some left over, or the water flows through the soil uh, and out into drains, and into You know, everything moves downstream toward the Thule Lake sumps. Um, as and historically, that was a really abundant source, um, but with things getting tighter and tighter. Uh, those, even those return flows are are drying up to tule Lake
3: so that that ultimately kind of leads to uh one of the issues that occurred this year as I understand it where you have reduced irrigation water, you to also as you say have reduced uh uh, flows into, into Tule Lake, into those sumps, which affects water levels in there, which eventually leads us to a discussion here about, uh, about botulism, if I understand it correctly. But before we get there, uh, Mark, what else about the 2020 biological opinion do we need to understand relative to the, uh, the its effects on, uh, wetland management opportunities and waterfowl habitats on lower Klamath?
4: Well, um, we actually, Mike, we're actually doing some work for the refuge now uh, for uh, Fish and Wildlife Service and looking what the impact of the 2020 biological opinion might be on waterfowl and waterfowl habitats on Lower Klamath Refuge uh, in particular. And from what we can tell based on the water that they're likely to receive and when they're likely to receive it um, is that in the 1990s, you had a, you had what I'll call a wet footprint on the refuge of somewhere in the vicinity of about 35,000 acres. This is on Lower Klamath. And by wet footprint, I mean, combination of seasonal wetlands, permanent wetlands, and flooded agriculture. Okay, about 35,000 acres. About split half and half between agriculture. Well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, About two thirds of that was wetlands, about another third was agriculture, I believe. But 35,000 acres, uh, nonetheless. Under the biological opinion, we're forecasting about a 6,000-acre wet footprint, which is, again is a combination of flooded ag and, and, and wetlands. So only about probably 20% or less of the essentially flooded habitat is likely to be out there on Lower Klamath as a result of the biological opinion compared to the heydays of the
3: 1990s. Yeah this is one of those oh crap moments you know where you <laughs> you start listening to those numbers and you think my goodness what is it what does it mean for the birds and yeah, i i guess this might be a good opportunity to transition to to discuss the the botulism that outbreak that occurred this year uh this made the news and certainly out uh, out West, uh, It actually even made the news back here on certain channels. And I just wanted to have an opportunity to talk about that because it does connect to this this issue of water availability and not enough to go around. Uh, Mark, do you want to talk about that, introduce kind of what happened, where it occurred, what the consequences were uh, for the botulism outbreak there on Tule Lake? Sure, but
4: I'm, I'm hardly a wildlife pathologist. And I know Dave has a lot more experience with the actual outbreak of botulism than I do. Do so, Dave. Please chime in. But you know, Dave. Dave mentioned we both talked about Mike that um, you know agriculture was only going to get about a third of the uh, you know the water it traditionally needed um, for irrigation, and of course that ultimately affected how much return flow reached the Tule Lake Sumps, right? Right. And so what was also happening, and Dave, to my understanding anyway, is Sump One A actually has become silted in over the years. So there's been an issue with that. So. So essentially, less water reaching Sump 1A, the fact that it now had been silted in, which had changed its whole bathymetry, meant that it was more easily turned into a mudflat or a shallowly flooded mudflat. You combine that with very, very warm temperatures that you typically get in the basin in, in late August and early September anyway, and that kind of provided the ideal conditions for a botulism outbreak. In
0: you and your dog are a team.
3: So the botulism outbreak this year, I believe I read it affected somewhere in the neighborhood. They estimate 50,000 ducks.
4: 50,000 is the estimate out there now.
3: Yes. And so, Dave, for those people that may not be as familiar with, with botulism, uh, can you describe uh, a bit about that dece- disease, how it, how it develops and what are the consequences to, to the birds?
1: Well, it's caused by a fairly uh, common soil uh, bacteria. Uh, anaerobic bacteria, in other words, it survives under conditions of or reproduces under conditions of low oxygen or no oxygen, and it produces a toxin. And botulism is one of the most toxic toxins there are. Um, you know, you hear it, you hear it talked about in terms of uh, uh, germ warfare, those sorts of things. But anyway, um, it it proliferates in uh, in a protein source like a, a dead aquatic invertebrate body, um, dead beetles, dead bugs in the water, dead worms. Um, and the ducks, of course, find that as a food item, they eat it. It takes very little, uh, that toxin that the bacteria produces to kill the duck. And just to add to the story, the the deck, of course, the temperatures are high. The flies get on the carcass. The deck carcasses produce maggots and those maggots, um, um, produce or concentrate the toxin and other ducks come along and eat those maggots and you get a cycle going. And, um, it's, it's very disheartening. Uh, when I worked at the refuge, uh, we would literally have botulism outbreaks to some degree every year and uh, it's, it's tough.
3: And now does it primarily affect birds during, um, during the molting cycle? Is that, that primarily when we're getting those outbreaks? I think the hardest
1: hit birds, at least what I observed was, those early migrants that are coming down in early August, mid-August, and then the molters. And the molters especially uh, are susceptible because they're flightless. They're stuck in that marsh uh, and they're on an invertebrate diet. Um, I I would even see a distinction between drake mallards and hen mallards because hen mallards would molt a month later uh, when you were really in the peak of the botulism season. Versus the Drakes that had molted earlier, they're now on the wing. The grain is ripening; they're out there feeding on grain fields. They're much less susceptible to the botulism.
3: Now, I, I do remember reading that uh, there were some, uh, several, a series of releases of water, I believe, from Upper Klamath Lake to try to um, provide some relief to the botulism outbreak. What's the status of that? Uh, of that? outbreak? Has it kind of subsided? Do we have it under control at this point? We're recording this here in mid-October just for reference.
1: I would guess based on the chronology of how an outbreak happens, that it's it should be tapering way off by now. Uh, you're getting frost at night. Uh, the uh, waters are cooling way down. Um, you know, it should be tapering off by now, but I, I'm sure to some degree it's still going. That's my understanding too, talking to John Radenberg,
4: Dave, who's the um, Supervisory biologist, or he may even have your old position, um, yeah. that, that, uh, they, they were provided some water to, to truly, to the sump one, a, which of course, you know, helped kind of, um, kind of, uh, produced uh, helped, eliminate some of the conditions that were ideal for the production of that toxin. So that helped that in combination with just cooler nights, I think has, um, has really helped. I think it's been a couple weeks now since they've actually been out there picking up birds.
3: So with regard to that botulism outbreak, we're talking about 50,000 birds, which, and I've seen some of those outbreaks up in, on some of the famous molting lakes in Saskatchewan. and And as you say, Dave, it is it is just heartbreaking to see those birds uh, dying the way they, they do. And I know there are cleanup efforts and some rehabilitation efforts. And uh, typically in those kind of situations, we're not talking about a type of outbreak at the scale that's going to have dramatic uh, population consequences. But nevertheless, it is an issue. It's certainly uh, certainly something that you don't want to see. And uh, it is, yeah, as we've talked about, one of those, uh, one of the potential outcomes of of a landscape where we're challenged to get enough water and uh, when we need it, and so I guess it's reasonable to to say that botulism outbreaks under the current situation uh, would might be more likely. Is that is that kind of a, a fair look ahead at the road, Dave or Mark? Either either of you have some thoughts on that?
1: um, I'll take a shot at it. I I think that's very likely. I I think under normal water situations, uh, when I was working down there, uh, you know, we didn't have all our eggs in one basket. You know, all our birds were not on some 1A. They were in Unit 8 on Lower Klamath and 12C and Unit 2 and Unit 3, and they were scattered all over the place. Plus, you may have still had some water in the marshes around Upper Klamath Lake and some other areas in the basin. So you you could... uh, you can scatter the birds out a little bit. And so if you did have an outbreak in one area, it didn't affect everything.
3: Well, let's see, we've talked a lot about some of the challenges facing Tule Lake, Upper Klamath, uh, Lower Klamath, and now it feels appropriate to try to shift to a discussion about potential solutions. What are we doing as Ducks Unlimited? What are some of our other partners in the region Doing and for this, Mark, I want to turn to you and ask you to comment a bit on on what Ducks Unlimited is doing. I know this is of great interest to to our members. We've actually received some uh, some feedback to uh, here in here in Memphis, wanting to know what are we what are we doing, and had some people ask about uh, wanting to hear on this topic. So, uh, what what's the story out there? I know we are working in a number of places. It's a priority region for us. So, just give our listeners an idea of the type of work that Ducks Unlimited is. is Helping on to try to try to bring some solutions to the region. Sure. Well,
4: I think we're there. There are four kind of major things that we're
3: involved in right now that
4: relate to um, specifically relate to Klamath Basin. Um, I'll actually the first one I'll start with actually um, involves Upper Klamath Lake, the source of uh, irrigation water, and. Uh, one of the things we're involved in up there, Mike, is a fairly large wetland restoration on the margins of the lake, if you will. And again, as Dave mentioned earlier, you know, that upper Klamath Lake, like Thule Lake and uh, lower Klamath Lake um, has a wetland um, border associated with it. And so we're looking to restore somewhere, I think, between 13 and 14,000 acres, a fairly large piece of ground on that. On Upper Klamath Lake, and so that would that would serve a couple different purposes. One, it would provide um, it would provide excellent waterfowl habitat. Um, two, it would likely provide some fish benefits too. Um, we suspect that um, those suckers spawn in those uh, fringe wetlands, and so there may be some spawning opportunities for fish that are that are provided by that work. It's likely to help with water quality issues in the lake. The lake does suffer from low water quality, so. That kind of work is aimed at actually improving the quality, if you will, of Upper Klamath Lake that supplies most of the uh, irrigation project water and tries to maybe get at the heart of some of the problem. You know, if we, can, if we can help restore the health of the lake and help restore those sucker populations, that ultimately might mean more water for everyone. So that's kind of what we're doing on the Upper Klamath Lake side. Um, on the lower Klamath side, we're doing, we're involved in a couple things. First, um, recognizing that, you know, lower Klamath refuge now is going to get very little water in the foreseeable future. Um, it's really important that whatever water is delivered to the refuge is used very efficiently. And so we're, we're engaged in kind of improving the water delivery, helping improve the water delivery structure on the refuge itself so that we squeeze value out of every drop of water that the refuge ultimately receives. Um, on Thule Lake, uh, we are we're looking at becoming involved or helping um, understand what it would take to actually rehab the sumps, especially Sump One A. Um, it's very very costly because they're sumps. The only way to really get water out of them uh, is to pump, and so we're looking at trying to make and, and pumping costs, as Dave mentioned, have become very expensive um because power costs have gone up and so we're looking at infrastructure improvements to sump 1a that would allow us or allow the refuge to actually um drain the sump if you will and kind of set it back rehab it and help restore some of those um, vegetation communities wetland vegetation communities in sump 1a that once made tule lake the kind of waterfowl mecca it was um, that's going to be a long road to haul, but um, it's a road we intend on going down. So those are kind of the, you know, on the ground, dirt moving, practical things that Ducks Unlimited is involved in um, on, on the refuges. We're also involved in something called the Klamath Coalition, which is really just kind of a community based approach to find to try and find solutions um, to the water issues of, of the Klamath Basin. Of course, it involves the major stakeholders, the major water st- stakeholders there, whether they be the tribes, um, the irrigators, the producers, um, and the refuges. DU is trying to kind of carve out a role for itself in that Klamath coalition, that stakeholder group, um, by forming a subgroup that's focused exclusively on the refuges and how do we get water To the refuges, you know, in this larger irrigation project. So, so those are the kind of things that we're involved in right now. Um, it's nothing that's going to, you know, this is going to take time. I mean, these problems were a hundred years in the making and they're not going to be solved in the next year or two, but, um, we are committed to the Klamath basin. We understand how important it was, it is to waterfowl populations in the Pacific flyway. And so that's kind of, that's kind of what set the front of our efforts um, at this time right now.
3: Mark, a, a couple of questions here. We haven't even we haven't even talked about waterfowl hunters in the region and how they may be affected. I did a bit of research or part of my research leading up to this uh, had me curious about what kind of hunting opportunities were available on Tule Lake and, and Lower Klamath. And I know there are hunting opportunities there. Are these water restrictions that we've seen and that we are likely to see or that we will see going forward going to, I mean, do you think it's going to reduce opportunities for hunting? It seems natural that it, that we might not be able to provide as much, uh, much opportunity for hunters. Do we have any insight on that?
4: Well, Mike, I have to believe that you're correct in that way, simply because there's not going to be at lower Klamath, there's certainly not going to be anywhere near You know, the wetland acreage that there traditionally is and that has to impact hunting opportunities at Tule Lake. I'm not quite sure. Um, And Dave, you were obviously involved with the hunt program on both refuges for many years. You're probably better able to speak to what is going to impact, you know, what kind of hunting opportunities are going to be there and not going to be
1: there because of these water shortages this year. But I have to believe there's going to be some kind of impact. Oh yeah, the water shortages will make a huge difference. Um, there just isn't uh, wetland habitat to hunt, and uh, you know if you don't if you don't have the water, you don't have the wetlands, and you don't have a place to hunt. So, uh, you know, in Thule Lake is, uh, I, I think the lower sump sump one B, they usually have a hunting program there. It's they're just starting to flood, put some water in there, and in the upper sump because of the siltation issues, the marsh is largely high and dry. So. Um, there is, it's pretty, pretty thin hunting opportunities this year. And, and, and that is tough too, because most of our hunters historically for the Klamath basin came from quite a ways away from the, the basin. You know, it was a big deal to drive up from Sacramento or even from LA or, or uh, down from Portland to hunt in the Klamath basin. And, uh, we've, we've kind of lost those people that make that long trip anymore. Yeah, it used to be
4: my understanding, Dave. It was, it was how a lot of people kicked off their season. It was a real tradition to go there a couple of weeks before the big show started in your own, you know, backyard. And you're right. I think a lot of that tradition has been lost. And, you know, some of the small towns around the refuges, you know, their culture was really heavily influenced by those annual migrations. And it's kind of sad to see that, you know, that's no longer kind of a part of some of those towns. Oh, absolutely!
1: The restaurants, the motels, the the picking plants are gone. <laughs> you know, the, the 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 places that used to process birds that hunters brought in—they're uh, pretty much gone.
3: Mark, you're very active in the in our conservation planning for the Central Valley of California as well. So naturally, recognizing that, as I think I've seen you refer to the, to the Klamath Basin as being sort of a gateway to the Central Valley, uh, what what's the logical conclusion with regard to uh, bird numbers or bird in, uh, in bird influences as it relates to them going into the central Valley? Is it as simple as saying, well, they probably won't be hanging out in the Klamath for as long. There won't be as many birds hanging out there. And so we might see those birds just skip on through more quickly to the central Valley. And does that influence our planning at all in the central Valley?
4: Those are good questions, Mike. And, you know, water issues, you know, of course. All of the major waterfowl landscapes in the Pacific Flyway have water issues, whether it's Klamath, whether it's the Central Valley, whether it's the Great Salt Lake, they all have long term water challenges and water challenges in one landscape are going to confound your water challenges in another. And the Klamath Basin and the Central Valley are probably a very good example of that. You know, Traditionally you know, you essentially had millions of birds, um, fall stage in the Klamath basin and that would, you know, delay their entry into the central Valley. Now, um, with some of those, with the refuges in the shape there, aren't we, we have to expect that migration will be accelerated into the central Valley. And in fact, I've already heard stories from some of our biologists down there that there are a lot of, there are a lot of birds, there are a lot of ducks in the central Valley right now, uh, more than usual. And, um, you know while that bodes well for opening day day down there um it you know it it could it could be could cause us problems in the future from the standpoint that the Central Valley has a finite amount of waterfowl food resources. And if more birds are getting into the Central Valley earlier than they traditionally have because of essentially dry habitats in the Klam- Klamath Basin, that's going to put additional pressure on those food resources. And it's going to increase the conservation challenges we already have in the Central Valley. So these landscapes are, they're tied at the hip. Um, it's a very short flight from the Klamath Basin to the Central Valley. and um I think, I think unless things improve in Klamath Basin, um, we can see probably birds get to the valley earlier than they used to. Certainly we already see that for white fronts. Um, white fronts used to essentially stage in the Klamath Basin, um, in through November. And now almost every white front that's going to be in the Central Valley is there by the third week of October. So we've already seen evidence of earlier migration into the Central Valley because of
1: changes in Klamath Basin habitats. I think it, it's important, you know, the Intermountain West also is sort of, it's a fairly dry environment. And so these these wetlands are sort of uh, these in the migration areas or are sort of oases in the desert. And, you know, we've, we've lost, uh, pretty much lost Mal here to due to the carp. It hasn't mostly destroyed that as a wetland for waterfowl. You know, the Klamath is kind of headed that way. Um, and then you think about, you know, I just hope my, my fear is that Lower Klamath is going to become like the Tulare Lake Basin where, you know, we've, all, we've already, it seems like we've all taken it for granted that that's gone and it's in nobody's memory anymore. And if these things go on long enough, uh, uh, no, no, it isn't in anybody's memory. And so nobody really knows what they had or what they lost. Um, and I, I would hate to see that happen.
4: You know, Dave, I think I think there are you're right. The West is a is an arid place. We have these duck oasis, uh, Tulare Lake and, you know, the southern part of the Central Valley used to be one of them. It's 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 far removed from most people's memories now. It's completely dry. But, you know, we have a limited number of these areas in the West and I almost look at them as dominoes. And, you know, you can make an argument that hey, another domino has fallen here unless we're able to kind of reverse where we are on these refuges. Right. Right. That That's how far do you how many legs of the stool can you kick out? That's right. There's not all that there's not all that many dominoes when you look around the when you look around the West.
3: Dave, you made a point there about Tulare Lake being uh, an area of historical importance that a lot of people have probably forgotten about. And so I uh, made me a note here to say that's probably a good podcast topic uh, for another episode to revisit some of those areas that were once proud destinations for wintering waterfowl, but through a number of these developments uh, no longer support those populations. And so just reminding people of them in the context of these additional challenges that we're seeing now is, is probably a very important thing to do.
1: There is there is still a, a National Wildlife Refuge down there, but it's a postage stamp, you know, current National Wildlife Refuge. And there's it's just very tiny remnant of what was what was there.
3: We're going to start wrapping up here, guys. We've been going at this for quite a while. It's as I mentioned, it's certainly a, <laughs> several times. It's a it's a complex story, and I really appreciate your patience in explaining a lot of these details to me and to our listeners. But before we wrap up, Mark, I have a question for you. We are transitioning here to some. Uh, some thought exercises of of boy, what's the future going to look like for waterfowl habitats in this and waterfowl populations out West. And so to, to wrap up, uh, let's let's bring it back to the Klamath basin mark i know you've thought a lot about this and if you could look into the future 20 years what would you envision as an acceptable you know kind of reasonable solution that tries to balance all the competing interests of the stakeholders with respect to uh, Tule lake and lower klamath national wildlife refuge
4: well, Mike, I think if we could get back to the point where we had this, what I consider a very, very successful combination of well-managed wetlands complemented by small grain agriculture um, done by contract farmers on the refuge, I think that would be a huge win for us. That's that's that recipe has proven successful um, elsewhere. Uh, it's certainly been used on the refuges before. And I think if we could get back to that, um, that would be a, that would be a victory, a big victory. But uh, that's going to be a long road.
3: And is it fair to say, Mark, that that's kind of the blueprint that Ducks Unlimited has in mind with regard to the kind of projects that we're envisioning and that we're pursuing for that landscape?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's important to know, Mike, that, that uh, you, know, our agri- you know, our agricultural partners are important to us everywhere. And they're doubly important in the, in, in the Klamath Basin. I mean, any solution is going to have to involve the agricultural community. It's going to have to involve help from the agricultural community um, to get us back to a place that um, those refuges are functioning uh, like they used to on behalf of waterfowl.
3: Dave, any final comments from you based on your years of experience, at, you know, your years of experience in the region and what has, how you've thought about this and where we might be going in the future?
1: Well, you know, I, I feel blessed to be able to have seen Lower Klamath uh, and Thule Lake back back in the. I started there in the late seventies, and to see what it was and what it could be, and and you know, I've worked in wetlands in the Sacramento Valley and the San Joaquin in uh, in Missouri and Wisconsin and North Dakota, uh, short stints, but. Uh, I will say that acre for acre, if you put water on a lower climate, it, it was easily the most productive wetland habitat I've ever seen. Uh, and so it's, it's worth the bang for the buck. It's worth the effort, you know, whatever effort needs to get to get that place functioning again.
3: And Mark, any final words from you?
1: No, Mike, just thanks for
4: hosting us and allowing us to share with your listeners, um, you know, what's going on and what to, needs to be done in a really important corner of the waterfowl world.
3: Absolutely. Uh, Thanks to you guys, man. I'm the one that I'm, I should be thanking you and I've actually done so every episode. So, but I'll do it again (laughs) on this one. And just a note to our listeners, uh, be on the lookout for an article in a forthcoming episode of the DU or in a a forthcoming issue of the DU magazine that's going to speak to this, uh, To this issue, Uh, Mark is actually uh, the author of that article, and so you can look forward to that. But by the time you uh, you get to that article, if you've listened to these, you will probably be an expert on it, and you'll see a lot of these same things. So, thank you, guys, Dave, Mark, so much for your extensive time and for your expertise on this topic. I really appreciate it. Well,
1: thank you for the invite. Thanks, Mike.
3: A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode. All three of these episodes, Dr. Dave Mauser and Dr. Mark Petrie. They have spent an inordinate amount of time with us and shared their expertise, and we greatly appreciate them doing so. We also thank our producer, Clay Bear, for the great work that he does with each of these podcasts and getting them out to you. And of course, to you, the listener, we thank you for your time, your interest in the podcast, and for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.